we are beginning today a study on the book of Malachi. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. And that study is going to take two to three weeks, maybe, or maybe more. It's hard to know how, how in-depth we get into it. But today is going to be an introduction to it. This is the first time in my life that I'm speaking in front of a crowd of people that I'm preaching like this, and I'm not going to use a single text. I'm not going to open the Bible one time today. But yet I'm talking about the Bible all day long, right? This is an introduction to the, to the, the, the book of Malachi, but until we can understand Malachi properly, we need to understand more about the thousands of years that happened before Malachi. We need to know the context of the people. So this is not going to be a typical Sunday morning message. So I pray that you can stay with me, and I pray that I can stay with me, <laughs> and that I can bring a good introduction um, of what this is going to be about. Basically, I, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, and then in the, in, the, in the weeks following, I'm going to tell you what I told you I was going to tell you, and then we're going to talk about what I told you. <laughs> So I'm just giving you a warning, Jackie, that I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you what I told you I was going to tell you, then we're going to talk about what I told you. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and we might want, you might be wondering, why in the world we, do we want to talk about that book? What is so special about Malachi? Well, I believe there's some really good special things that we're going to learn as we talk through this book over the next few weeks. We have to remember that Malachi was the last prophet that spoke God's word in the Old Testament covenant. God went silent for 400 years after Malachi. That's older than our country is. Our country is not even 300 years old. But God stopped speaking to the Jewish people for a period of 400 years after the prophet of Malachi until John the Baptist came on the scene, which then began the beginning of the New Testament covenant. So I have good things to say. I have good reason to believe that God has some very important things for us to learn because if God is going to say some things, his last words to the Jewish people, I think they're important that we should listen to them. I think they're important that we should study them. But until we can get into them, we need to understand the context of what was happening in those days. I believe we're going to find this to be very relevant. And there will be many corollaries between the days of Malachi and the days that we live in today. So I'm excited about this. I'm looking forward to getting through it. I, uh, I just wanted to define some terminology. I don't like the word story when we talk about the Old Testament. We often talk about the Old Testament stories, don't we? But story has a connotation that it's a story and not real. That it's made up, that it's exaggerated, or that it's just a nice thing to tell a bedtime story. But the account of the Old Testament is real. Everything that happened, everything that's told about in the Old Testament, from Jonah and the whale, to David and Goliath, to Noah's ark, those spectacular things... They're not just stories in the Bible. They are true accounts 
of God working in the lives of his people. And so I like to use the word account versus of story. Now, I may slip every now and then and use the word story because I do that quite often. But I just want you to know that I'm talking about something that's real and true. And so when we talk about the account of the Old Testament, it's the truth of God's word. Now, we know that God doesn't change. His character is perfectly holy and righteous. He, can't, he can never be more holy than he was yesterday. He can never be more righteous than he was yesterday because God is perfect in his holiness, perfect in his righteousness, and he never changes. Man, on the other hand, changes a lot. Our context, our situations of life change all the time. We've seen the great changes even in the past couple months, haven't we? between what was normal a few months ago to what is normal today. And will we ever get back to the normal of yesterday? I I don't know. Life changes. But there's one thing in man that is consistent, that doesn't change, like God doesn't change. And that one thing is his nature of sin. It doesn't make any difference when you lived, if you lived, if you lived in pre-Noah days or Abraham days or in the days of, that we live in today, one thing is consistent about all men, and that is the nature of human sin. The only thing that changes sin is the blood of Christ. The only thing that changes our sin nature is the blood of Jesus that comes and washes us and makes us whiter than snow. But there's lots of things in life that change. Our context, our situations change a lot. Therefore, we need to understand as much as we can about the unchanging nature of God and how that relates to the changing characteristics of man so that we can understand what God is truly trying to tell us. Yeah. Are you a New Testament reader? I mean, sorry, an Old Testament reader? Yeah. I, uh, I have become one. And I'm seeing so much that we can learn from the Old Testament. Um, In fact, if we don't think about the Old Testament very much, we really don't understand our Christian faith very much. doesn't mean you're not saved. Don't, Don't get me wrong. You don't have to be an Old Testament scholar to be saved. But I think that when we recognize the the narrative, the story, the account of what God was uh, trying to accomplish in the Old Testament, it helps us understand more about us and what he's trying to accomplish and do in our lives. So I want to just talk about some key points to highlight the Old Testament, similar to what he did here, and just take the next few minutes to do that. And so we can grasp a little bit more why the Old Testament is important and then setting all this up for what Malachi has to deal with in the last book of the Old Testament. So going back to the beginning, God created this world and everything in it, right? We know that. I think we all believe that. I think we believe in the, in the account of the creation. It's not evolutionary. It is God speaking the words as Judah does, right? How does God create the world? What does, it, what does Judah say? He says it. That was what Pastor Leland said last week about his grandson, Judah. I think that's great that you've taught him that, that God just spoke the word 
and everything became. That's pretty, that's pretty awesome. But what was God's purpose in creating the world? And what was his most important creation in the world? Well, I think we're going to find that God's purpose in creating the world was for men, that we could live in the world. And God's, God's apple of his eye, if you will, was you and I, mankind. And God created the world for us. Now, why did he create us? Because he, had, he wanted relationship. And God's love for man is above everything else he created. God called his creation good, but he called when man was created, according to what we heard last week and what the Bible says, very good. So he had a special, a special spot for men in God's heart because God loves you and I so much. So God created man, but really what is our purpose for being created? Why did God create us? Have you ever really thought about that? Have you ever pondered the reality of why did God create you? Why did he? Why did he create man? Well, I think it's important that we understand that from the beginning to the end, God's purpose for creating man was to be in family relationship with him. He wanted to call you son and daughter. That's what he wanted. He created us for the specific purpose of relationship. He didn't create us to be the caretakers of the garden. He didn't create us to be um, just to populate the earth. He created us because he wanted people that had free wills to choose to love him the way he loves us. This is a very important point. If we don't get this point, if we don't understand that God created us to love us and he created us so that we would love him, then we're going to miss the whole point of God's intensity and his passion when he chases after a man that's lost. We're going to miss the whole point and we're going to recognize that what, and we're going to see what God is, is doing and, and allows to happen and actually does in his discipline of mankind and his chasing after them and going after them even when they have failed him over and over we're going to miss the point of his rules and his commandments for us. Because the only reason he gives us rules and commandments is because he wants to protect us from ourselves. Because if we live in an uncontrolled environment to our own devices, anarchy will soon happen and you will have many, many problems in life. Not to say that when you... When you trust God fully that your problems are going to go away, but we have a source that we go back to to help us get through the problems in life. So if we don't understand that God's point is love, then we misunderstand so many of the things that don't appear to be loving about God. And that's what the devil wants you to see. 
That's the twisted nature of the enemy is that he will come in and he will try to make you feel that God doesn't love you when bad things happen to you. We have to see the bigger picture of the narrative of God. Part of that begins and ends with the power of choice. God gave you and I the power of choice that is the proof that he uses to see what's in the heart of a man. If you didn't have the ability to choose, then God can't be, he can't see your proof. If he created you to love him and love him only, then there's no real value in that love. Love comes when it's a choice to love, right? I've used the example before. If I had to get my wife down in a half-Nelson headlock and get her to the point where she's on the ground and she can't breathe, and I say, tell me you love me, and then finally with her last breath, she says, I love you. That doesn't mean a whole lot. It means that she's trying to survive. But when she can tell me that she loves me by her on her own volition, then that's meaningful, right? And that's where we're at with God. The power of choice has proven to be the most powerful force that God ever created. Think about that. The power of choice is the most powerful force that God ever created, and he gave it to you. He trusts you with the power of choice. It's by man's ability to choose between honoring and obeying God is the only way for man to prove to God that he loves him. Really, what other way can I prove to God by the fact that I would honor him? And the fact that I would obey his commands. I told you I wasn't going to use any scriptures, but I'm going to reference them. Jesus says, if you love me, what does he say? That you'll obey me. It's not because he's hard. It's not because he's critical. It's because that's the power of choice that he's given us, that we prove ourselves, we prove our love for God by our willingness to obey God. And it's when I rise against that willingness to obey God, it proves to God, and hopefully it proves to you and me that maybe I don't love God the way I say I do because I'm not obeying him, because I'm trying to make my own way. This is where the battle lines are drawn for every man and woman that has ever lived and that ever will live. That's the consistency of the sin nature that mankind has, is that the enemy is there to to bring the battle to our life. He's there to bring the battle of, am I going to surrender myself to God, or am I going to stubbornly want my own way, thinking that I can have a better way than God, or I can have another way to God. That's why it's important that we understand the narrative of the Old Testament because in this, this is where we're starting to see God's call for the people. We need to see the bigger picture of how God loves us and how he deals with 
all of mankind so that we can understand how he loves and deals with us personally. That's why we're in church. That's why it's important that we come together in church and we study God's word together. It's not about just coming to be entertained like we talked about earlier and having a great worship service like we had today and and having prayer, which we had today, which is all good and all proper. But the overall purpose of us coming together corporately in a body of believers and then, then to be under a biblical teaching is that we would understand God and that we would understand how much he loves us. See, I said earlier that God can be misunderstood. If we don't see God's love for us and how passionately he loves us, we can misunderstand God's attempts to get our attention. We can misunderstand him by being a mean God, a hard God, an angry God, but if we don't understand love. So if God can be misunderstood, then clearly a Bible-preaching pastor can be misunderstood. Because it's not all about coming into church and just feeling good about yourself if you're not in a relationship with Jesus, is it? If that was what the pastor was going to do, was just to make you feel good about yourself no matter how you were living, shame on that pastor is what my grandma would say. Shame on you. Because that's not the role of the pastor, nor is it the role of God. God loves us so much that he chases you down. He chases me down. Even when I'm not living right for him, he chases me down and he does things to get my attention. And part of that is through Bible teaching. Part of that is living, is sitting, being willing to sit in a church that teaches the Bible. And sometimes it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. So as we continue in our overview of the Old Testament, We have to see that God has a better way. And the better we understand God and how he loves us, the better we can understand ourselves. So God creates, in the narrative of the Old Testament, God created and then he chose a certain people group to be his chosen people. And we see that in the life of Abraham. He called Abraham and he said, Abraham, I'm going to send you to a place you've never been before. Leave your family, leave the place where you're comfortable and go to a place that I'm going to show you and I'm going to lead you in. And and to Abraham, that was a big risk because he had to leave his family. He had to leave the security and and the safety of his family environment. And he took off with the resources that he had and he went across the desert, had no idea where he was going, but God said, I'm going to call you apart. I'm going to set you apart and I'm going to bless you, Abraham. And I'm going to call you a chosen people. And that's where we come up with the family of the Jews. The Jews are a special people. They are called. They are the chosen people of God. And we need to recognize them as such. God said that I will bless you, Abraham, and those that are in your family line, and I will bless you with great things because I'm going to give you a covenant. And that's where we come up with the covenant of the Old Testament. And that's where we come up with the Old Testament laws, the Ten Commandments and such, and all the laws that the Old Testament gives us. And, the, and God says, Abraham and all the Jewish people, if you will live by my covenants, I will bless you. 
I will bless you above all other nations, above all other people. I will bless you, and I will give you many things, and I will give you my, my favor if you follow my commands. And that becomes the struggle of the Old Testament. God is promising his Jewish people, his chosen people, blessings if they will follow his commands. Now, I'm not a Jewish person. I'm a Gentile, and probably most of us in this room are Gentiles. The new covenant gives us a different relationship, and we'll talk about that later. But the importance of being a Gentile, according to God's word, is that God's word also promises those that bless the Jews, God will also bless. Like I said earlier, we talked about racial racial reconciliation earlier this week, and I don't want to go down that path that's just way too deep for us to get into right now, but it doesn't make any difference what race, if you will, or nationality we're talking about. Um, we can be prejudiced, even if we have the same skin color, we can be prejudiced against the Jewish people because we can be. But I'm just encouraging us that the reconciliation is all at the cross for all of us. It doesn't make any difference our skin color. We're all one race. We all have original parents, the same original parents. We're all one race. Yet God has the chosen people of the the Jewish nation. And so, even with the promise, this is where this is key, this is important, even with the promise that God gave to the Jewish people about the covenantal blessing, what did they do? What is the whole story of the Old Testament about? It's the struggle between the Jews obeying God rather than them disobeying and becoming rebellious and stiff-necked and rejecting God's laws, and then God saying, okay, if that's what you want, here's the consequences. I said I would bless you if, but if you don't obey, then here are the consequences. And so the whole Old Testament account is the consistent rebellion of the Jewish people and the consistent calling of God for them to come back to him out of love. We see jealousy in family relationships that end up destroying families. Yet God will use what the enemy uses to destroy, he'll use to bring salvation. Case in point, Joseph. We saw that in that little video we saw too about how God used Joseph being sold to slave traders. The brothers thought they were getting rid of him only to find later that God would use him to save them. And that brings the Jewish people into Egypt. And that brings them in where they then populate Egypt. And then we know the story. We know the account of, the, of, the, of them over hundreds of years there. They become uh, enslaved to Pharaoh. And then they have to live through the bondage of slavery to Pharaoh and the hard work of making bricks and things and building Pharaoh's palaces and building up Egypt to be what it was on the backs of the Jewish slaves until God raises Moses to be that deliverer. And we know the account of Moses. How God brings Moses in and he delivers them through mighty miracles. And uh, the Jewish people are set free from the bondage of Egypt. 
this is where there is one of a few points that the Jewish people had an opportunity to really turn to God and be faithful once again. Because think about this. The Jewish people have been just, just have been delivered from Egypt, and they saw many miracles of God um, convincing the Egyptians to let them go through all kinds of plagues, right? We saw the, all the, the, the multiple plagues that were there, and you can go back and read all those. Then we also see that when Pharaoh finally said, get out, they blessed them with all kinds of riches. Remember, these were slave people. They had nothing. But yet when they left Egypt, God changed the heart of the people and they poured out wealth above for them. They gave them gold and silver and food and livestock and all the resources that they needed to have to go set up a new, another kingdom and, an, and another land. And God gave them all that bounty. And then they get to the Red Sea and they're trapped again now because the, the Egyptian army is chasing them down. They've decided they've made a bad choice. They let the people go and they chase them down only to find out that God splits the Red Sea and the Egyptians, I'm sorry, the Jewish people walk across on dry ground. Pretty amazing miracles, huh? And then when the Egyptian army gets in the middle of the Red Sea, God lets the sea come back and swallows them all up. So here is something that's amazing. This is a great opportunity for the Jewish people to say, wow, that is the God I want to serve, and I'm going to serve him with all of my heart thereafter because I see how God has provided for us. And what we find is that it wasn't more than two weeks they were already grumbling against God. And now because of their sin of grumbling, what was supposed to have been about a, about a two-week journey they could have left Egypt and in about two weeks gone right into Canaan. It was about that far of a journey. But because of the sin, because of their choice to rebel against God, God said, okay, now I'm going to make you wander for 40 years in the desert. A two-week journey turned into 40 years because of man's sin. Now, if that doesn't stop and make us think about the foolishness of man's choices, and God's ultimate power of his righteousness, then what will? I mean, they had the opportunity to go right into the promised land. They had seen God's great miracles. There was no reason for them to question God. There was no reason for them to distrust God. But yet, sin, the common nature of man, rose up so quickly in them that God said, okay, now, the punishment is you're going to wander for 40 years and that generation that rebelled is going to die off and they will never enter the promised land. And that's exactly what happened. They wandered in the desert for 40 years until all the old folks died off. And the second generation, the one that wasn't responsible for what the rebellion was, they were allowed to go in to the promised land under Joshua. Remember, God was trying to call them back to them all this time through his love. He gave manna and he gave them quail and he provided shoes that never wore out and clothes that never wore out. After 40 years, they never wore their clothes out. Their shoes never wore out. Think of that. God provided them manna every morning for 40 years. 
There's the constant love of God drawing his people to them, and then there is the consistent stiff-arming of his people against God. And now we get into the judges, and we get into the kings, and we, we, we get into the point where, where God's people, now they want to be like the other ungodly nations around them. The other nations had kings, people that they could see. So, God, so they said, God, we want a king. And God said, you mean I'm not good enough for you? <laughs> you can't serve me. I can't be your provider. I can't be your king. And they said, no, you're not good enough for us, God. We want to be like the other nations. Give us a king. And God tried to just talk them out of it. He tried to dissuade them. No, you don't want a king because you can't trust a king. You can trust me because I will do things for your best interest and I will provide for you. But if I give you a king, you're going to be under his kingship no matter what he does. And they said, yep, give it to us. That's what we want. So God said, okay. He gave him a king. Gave him King Saul. And we know that King Saul started out okay, but it wasn't long before pride rose up in King Saul's life and then foolishness. And King Saul ended up dying a suicidal death. Okay, then comes King David. And King David, even though that he was called a a man after God's own heart, he still was a man, and he still had faults, and he still didn't do everything right. And then comes the other kings after him, Solomon and so forth. And, And then you see all the issues of kingship. That's where we have all the problems. It got to the point where one king would take after that would be evil, and his son would be even more evil there were only two good kings of all the kings that happened. And then we had the country split, okay? Now we taught the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Now, I'm saying this all for a reason, so hang with me a little bit. So they, they split. They're, um, again, consistently rebelling. All the minor prophets. If you read First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, and the minor prophets, you're going to see God constantly calling his people back. You're going to see prophets. You're going to see people constantly saying, come back to God. He loves you so much. He wants to do, he wants to be your source. And we're going to see a consistent rebellion. And if you read those, they're almost, they almost get hard to read. I will tell you that. They almost get hard to read because you see such stupid people. And a consistency of God calling people back. God's love is consistent. And you see people just throwing up on God all over the place. And it's almost hard to read. But I challenge you to read it. I challenge you to understand it. I challenge you to try to understand why they're doing that. Because we're seeing ourselves in that. Maybe different context. Maybe different situation. But maybe it's so hard for me to read it is because I'm kind of looking in the mirror. And I'm seeing my own rebellion. I'm seeing my own self stiff-arm God and say, no, God, I don't want to do it your way. I've got my way, and it's just as good as yours. Yeah. So until we understand the historical perspective of the Jewish people that Malachi has to deal with, we really, real, we really won't be able to properly appreciate what he's trying to say in his book. So that's kind of bringing me, for the next 10 or 15 minutes, I want to just talk a little bit more about what Malachi's got to deal with what his people are dealing with now. And then we'll get into next week and the weeks after actually getting into the scripture of Malachi and understanding the details. Then I'll tell you what I'm going to tell you. Then I'll talk about what I told you. You see, Malachi understands the time that he's living in. 
Malachi understands the historical perspective of the Jewish nation. And he also understands the seriousness of the words that God is giving him. I will tell you that all of the minor prophets were, they were tough dudes. Because every time they went to the people, they were not telling them how good they were. They were telling them how bad they were and how God was calling them back because God loved them so much. The old, the minor prophets, if you read the minor prophets, Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet because it broke his heart so much because he was only trying to tell people what they needed to do to please God and the people just kept doing the wrong things and Jeremiah would just be was so broken over it. That's the heart of a true prophet. Can I tell you that? There's prophets today, but the heart of a true prophet, prophet is one that weeps for his people. A true prophet will have a pain and an angst in their soul that will say, I have to say it. I don't want to say it. I don't want to tell people, but I have to because they need to hear the truth of God's word. They need to know how much God loves them. They need to know where they're at and then give them a plan and a way forward. It's a tough message, but it's a message of love. And that's where Malachi was at. Malachi is the last word that God is going to speak to the Jewish people for over 400 years, and Malachi knows it. Remember, Malachi means my messenger, the messenger of God. Now, let's look at Malachi's time. Now, it's a hundred years after the Jewish people have come back to their homeland. Remember, the king of Persia, Cyrus, after 70 years of exile of the Jewish, of the Judah, the southern country, the southern portion of the, that tribe, they had been in exile for 70 years under king Bab, of the king of Babylon. Cyrus and the Persian Empire overtake Babylon, and Cyrus has, God moves on Cyrus's heart to say, send my people home. And so he does. Over There's three waves of people going out of Persia, back through Assyria, back into Jerusalem, back go into the southern kingdom. And that's where Nehemiah comes in, where they rebuild the, the, the walls around Jerusalem and so forth. So, so after the 70-year exile, after they've been back for, for 100 years, they've been back. All the promises of God have been have been given to these people. And now they're back. The, the, the temple has been built. The walls around the city have been rebuilt by Nehemiah. But life still isn't good for the people. People, even though the walls are rebuilt, the people are still living in the country. They haven't really come back into the city. The harvests are not bountiful. The temple is finished, but not in the grand way that it was under King Solomon. So they're looking at the temple as not really being what it should be. There are still all kinds of plagues of locusts. And life just is hard yet for the people. Even though they're back in their home country, they're still ruled by Persia. They don't have a king of their own. They're just a small 
country surrounded by unfriendly people, unfriendly, ungodly people that really don't want them there. It's nothing like it was under the kingdom of David. See, and the people all thought, by this time they're getting impatient. At this time, they're all thinking, well, God, where are all these promises? All these prophets have promised we would have blessing and we would have bounty. Where is it, God? And they're they're at a point now where they're questioning, why are we even doing what we're doing? They're beginning to ask, was it worth it? Was it worth it? We've been back for a hundred years, and where is this kingdom, God, that you promised us? They were asking questions that many ask today. If this is the way godly people live, and this is the result of it, then why even bother? Why even bother? So as a result, many of them were getting complacent and they were getting contented and they were settling into the mundaneness of living a life that was professing something but really not living it. They felt that God had abandoned them and left them to their own to fend for themselves. So with this, they're saying, well, what good is it then? Why should I serve God when God isn't helping me? Why should I give my best to God when he doesn't seem to be caring for me? Have you ever asked those questions? Do you ever feel the fact that you're giving all that you have for God and maybe God hasn't come through for you? This is why I'm seeing this book to be very relevant for us today. This and many other reasons. That's just one of them. You see, once people began to wonder if it's worth it, it won't be long before their religious life takes on the same level of compromise and complacency. Once you start to under, ask the questions, God, is it worth it? You're going to think, well, why should I even be a Christian? We find that these people lost their love and their fervor for God and their religion became a formality to them. They still went to temple, but they lost their heart and their love for God. It became a ritual and a formality to them. They began to ask many questions about their need to live for God. They started to live with questions like, well, what is the minimal amount of time then and effort then that I need to spend to have a religious life? What was the least amount of money that I needed to give to the temple? How much can I get away with? How how, how much can I get away with and still be seen as a godly person? That's, that's what these people were dealing with. Does any of this sound familiar to the world we live in? But it's just not the people that were the problem. We see the priests to be just as bad as the people. We see them performing their role as a priest minimally. We see the priest just going through the motions. It just became a job for them. It didn't become, they lost the ministry of the priesthood. And now it became an occupation, a way to make a living. They didn't care about the people. They weren't concerned if the temple was full or not. They just wanted to get their sacrifices so that they could get the meat from the people to live off of. 
They didn't care about teaching Scripture. They didn't care about teaching the truth of God's Word. They just wanted to go through the motions because it was a job. And I'm afraid that's true today. I'm afraid that that's happening in many other churches and maybe here, and God forgive me if it ever has. But the ministry is just as important today as it was in God's day. And when priests and leaders lose the fervor and lose the passion and lose the love for God's word, See, we find by studying this, these people, that once one loses their priority and their love for God and his word, they soon begin to lose many other areas of priority in their life morally. Once you start to lose the the purpose and the passion and the priority for God's word, then you lose your morals. When one starts to ask the question, "Why why bother about living for God? then it won't be long before they'll start saying, why bother about being godly? Why bother about being a good person? Can you see a problem here? When one generation starts to question their purpose and their cause for being godly, the second generation takes it a step further and questions, why then do we even have to be good? If there's no moral authority, then soon it becomes an anything-goes world and evil abounds without limits. And this is what Malachi was facing because the people were starting to lose their fervor, started to lose their morality, and it was an anything-goes world. I've heard it said, and I've actually, I'm seeing it happen. This, the, the, the old saying goes, when, when one generation winks, at something, the second generation accepts it as, okay, I guess I can do it. And the third and the following generations never knew there was a cause for concern in the first place. When one generation winks at sin, the second generation accepts it, and the third generation doesn't even know that it was a sin. And that's a problem. That's what Malachi was facing. And that's what we're facing today. Let's just call it for what it is. We have a responsibility to be a generation that won't wink at sin. We call it what it is. It's sinful and it's wrong, and I'm not going to wink at it because I don't want those following me to accept it. I don't want them to think that it's okay because I winked. Because I gave it a nod of approval, I don't want them to think it's okay. Help us, Lord, that we don't do that. This is what Malachi was saying, that once people lose their fear and respect for God's word, then goodness will soon be lost as well. The people of Malachi's time were living for themselves without regard for God. It was a me-first attitude, and if there was anything left over at the end of the day, then they would give it to God. It didn't matter if it was their time or their money. It's all about living in the moment all about striving to satisfy my own personal desires without a need or without, without a thought about God, what he thought about it. You see, if one isn't faithful to God, then, it's, then he, 
in, in, in those things, then in Malachi's day, I, I know I'm, I'm wrapping up here shortly. In Malachi's day, if you're not faithful to God in those things, then soon you will be unfaithful to your wife. Moral issues. Especially when she loses some of her sex appeal. Now, I know I'm... Here's the point. When they left, when the Jewish people came back from exile, they were mainly men. A lot of the women didn't make it back for whatever reason. So now you have Jewish men marrying Jewish women, which is the way it's supposed to be, godly women, which is the way it's supposed to be. But in this day of immorality, what was happening was that these Jewish men were seeing younger women... And they were attracted to them, and because they'd lost their morality, these younger women were a temptation to trade in the old model for the younger model. And the problem here, not only is that a sin, but the problem is they were ungodly women. They weren't Jewish women. They were women of the, of the other nations, the foreign nations, and so they were ungodly. So here we have divorce because they just wanted to divorce for the sake of divorce so they could marry who they wanted to marry. And that was against God's laws and God's commands. And Malachi deals with it. And where are we at today? Now, I know there's divorce is a big issue today. And I know that there are people that have been divorced for right and wrong reasons. Malachi deals with that. We think sexual issues are new. They're not. Sexual issues, sexual sins, they're not new. They've been around ever since man was created. Time hasn't changed the devi- and, 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 and time hasn't changed the consequences of it either. Yeah. Overall, the people were living in a pretty sta- sad state of deception. They were still going to the temple but they were giving blemished sacrifices, not their best. They were still giving money in the offering, but only a little bit. They didn't see the purpose of the tithe. They were divorcing their wives for younger ones, yet they were still getting married, so they thought they were okay. They weren't living, in a, they weren't living uh, uh, cohabitating. They were, got married, so they thought, well, I must be, it must be okay to get remarried, but they weren't marrying godly people. So they were starting to say, that they could justify lots of things in their life. They felt good about themselves because they justified a lot of things. And then it, got, and then it came to the point where um, they said, well, where is this God of love? Where is this God of love? When we weren't blessed as they thought they should be, and they might have been seeing some ungodly nations around them, uh, not just surviving, but actually thriving, so now they're starting to question God. And the criticism of God had two sides. Number one, God doesn't reward good living. And number two, God doesn't punish bad living. Because they saw the, the foreign nations thriving and they were struggling. So they said, well, God must not be caring about us. He's not, he's not rewarding me for li- living right and he's not punishing those that are living wrong. So I hope that you're starting to see the context of Malachi's time. Now, I'm going to stop here. I'll pick it up next week in this introduction because it's important that we have a proper introduction so we can understand why Malachi says some of the things that he says.
I hope we're seeing the fact, the question that comes to my mind is, why bother living for God? Why bother? So I want you to think about that this week. All right? Why? Why bother living for God? What's your purpose? Why do you go through? Are you just going through the motions? Is, is, is religion, I don't like the word religion, is your faith a formality? Do you come to church because you're expected to and because it makes you feel good about the rest of your week so you go to church to get your Sunday fix? Or do you really go for a purpose? Do you really find yourself to be worshiping God? So I just want to leave you with that today. Think about that. Then let's come back next week and find more out about the book of Malachi. Father, we just thank you for this day today. Holy Spirit, I just invite you to come into my life to search me and know my heart and see if there be any wicked way within me and lead me in the way of everlasting. That's my heart. And that's the heart of this church. And I thank you for these people. And I thank you, Lord, that we have a hunger for you. And I pray, Lord, that as we dig into what this means and the context of Malachi and, and all the things that are, we're going to learn over the next few weeks, I pray, Father, that we would be... Um, rich in your goodness, and we would see your mercy and your love for us. So I thank you for this. And I give you praise, and I give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Be blessed this week. Think hard. Go read Malachi. We'll we'll talk more next week. Be blessed.